Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. Club Book is made possible by Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund, MELSA, and Library Strategies. We'd like to thank our media sponsors at Minnesota Public Radio and MinPost.com for helping us get the word out about our great guest authors. This podcast features Mitchell Zukoff at Washington County's R.H. Stafford Library in Woodbury. Mitchell Zukoff is a veteran journalist and prolific historian. A two-decade career as a roving correspondent for the Boston Globe won him numerous accolades, including a Pulitzer Prize nomination. As an author, his recent New York Times bestsellers include two larger-than-life World War II aviation thrillers, Lost in Shangri-La, a true story of survival, adventure, and the most incredible rescue mission of World War II, and Frozen in Time, an epic story of survival and a modern quest for lost heroes of World War II. Zukov's journalism background proved invaluable to his most recent and most important book project to date, 13 Hours. It is considered the definitive account of what happened on September 11, 2012, when terrorists in Libya attacked the U.S. State Department compound in Benghazi. Zukov makes use of slides in this discussion. If you're interested, you can find those online at clubbook.org slash podcasts. And now, Mitchell Zukov. Thank you very much. Thank you, Amelia. Thank you for having me here tonight. Uh, just want to make sure we're in the right place. This is the, um, the sales meeting for the Benghazi discount uh, <laughs> timeshare condos. Uh, we've got some great uh, beachfront property. Uh, before we get started on my talk, I, um, I want to share with you it's sort of a little bit out of order, kind of the ending before we get to the beginning. Um, as some of you may know, 13 Hours is becoming a movie. And so, and they just not long ago released the trailer. Some of you may know Michael Bay uh, from Transformers. And uh, he made the Transformer movies. So I was in, uh, in Malta with him uh, for part of the filming um, in, in May. He promises there will be no giant robots that come in and save the day. And this, he is sticking to the actual story. Uh, so let me tell you a little bit about the actual story and, and, and my, my role in it. A lot of people think they know Benghazi because of all the, the noise and the, uh, the static that has been around the story. Uh, indulge me, if you will, and let me run you through uh, the very basics uh, before we get to the ending and, and, and the movie and all of that. So essentially, this book and this whole story takes place uh, in northern Africa, uh, in Libya. As, as you know, people 
probably before 2012, most people had never heard of Benghazi. Maybe perhaps heard of Tripoli. Um, but Benghazi is this sort of, is the second city of Libya. It's um, the sort of the main eastern Libyan city, uh, closer to Egypt and obviously right on the Mediterranean. Uh, it's, it's arranged in a series of, um, of ring roads. And most of the action that I'm going to be talking about tonight takes place around here, right next door, in fact, to the Venezia restaurant. And Benghazi was the location of an American diplomatic mission uh, known as the Compound. And this is where uh, sort of the American flag flew after uh, Gaddafi was deposed and we were trying to figure out what was next for Libya. Now, there are problems with this place, and these problems become evident over the course of, of the story. Uh, this is, it's called a diplomatic mission. Now, in the United States, we have certain rules for how a consulate or an embassy is going to be protected. Uh, because this was neither a consulate nor an embassy, it did not have to meet those standards. And so, uh, none of the normal rules about things like fire suppression, or how high the walls have to be, or, and, and on and on and on, had to be met here. And you can even sort of see from this layout uh, of how poorly uh, designed this is, quite frankly. You would not, in a normal diplomatic facility, have things like, um, a, you know, grape arbors. Uh, you know, it's places to hide if somebody were to come over the walls. Um, those kinds of setbacks are not ideal. It's too large and, and too unprotected. And there, in fact, were very, very few guards ever there. Um, there were some locally hired guards, uh, Libyans who were, were paid uh, just a terrible small amount of money. And in fact, when this was all about to happen, they were in the middle of a work stoppage. They refused to accompany the American ambassador on his travels around Benghazi for, because they were basically on strike. And so these were very low-paid uh, Libyan guards and at most five American guards who were there to follow and, and protect the diplomats who would be there. And this is what it looked like in its, its glory days. Um, it was quite lovely. It had been built as a family compound for a rich hotel owner, uh, a Libyan hotel owner in Benghazi. And that up there is the main gate. And this was uh, a little sort of secondary house that was being used as a barracks for the local Libyan guards. And this was the main ambassador's. This was the villa, as it was known. And uh, it had a swimming pool. Sometimes it was filled. Uh, but it really, and, and I, I almost can't make this stuff up. This was the idea of a defensive position there. I mean, my house has better, is better <laughs> defended than that. Uh, I live in Boston, so it's, it's understandable. But um, so a few uh, sandbags were, uh, you know, uh, was a fighting position at the Benghazi mission compound. And that's the interiors uh, where the ambassador, when he was in residence, because he's normally not there. He's normally in Tripoli. That's, his, that's where there is an embassy. And it is very heavily guarded by a marine detachment, by uh, guards, with, this, with the rules that we're forced to, understandably, and I think appropriately, to follow to make sure our diplomats are protected. So this is just some, some images. And th there's that, um, the arbor or the um, the vineyard uh, on the property. It's not a good idea. Um, 
And by June of 2012, there were signs of trouble already. Um, there was a, a bomb, some kind of explosive device, blew a hole in the wall outside the compound. It was clearly a kind of a, a bit of a test. Uh, and during that same month, the, the International Red Cross Office was attacked and the Brits were attacked. The British ambassador, Sir Dominic Asquith, was attacked in the streets. And uh, the, the Brits closed their embassy, in, uh, their, their consulate, and virtually all other Western uh, facilities also were closed. But we kept ours open, but without added protections. What we didn't know until after September 12, 2012, uh, 11th and 12th, 2012, was that nearby, less than a mile away, was another American compound. It was a CIA compound. As many of you probably know, or you may know, uh, wherever we have diplomats, usually we have spies nearby. That's just how it works around the world. Uh, uh, there are 285 American diplomatic outposts around the world, and nobody will tell you, but there are probably at least 285 CIA bases around the world as well. Uh, they often work hand in hand, and, uh, but they are secret. And this was, in fact, the CIA attics was a secret facility where uh, different American interests were, were being dealt with. Uh, and you, this gives you a sense of where they were. It was not a consulate. This is mislabeled. This is a, uh, a congressional um, image. But that's it. so that was where the, the diplomatic, the public facility was. And right here was where the CIA annex was, so less than a mile away. In early September of 2012, uh, a decision was made by Ambassador Stevens that he needed to go to um, Benghazi. Benghazi was the cradle of the revolution against Gaddafi, and it was important, uh, Christopher Stevens believed, to make sure we were in touch. The American ambassadors, the American diplomats were in touch with the people who were going to be ruling that very important city, that second city. And with him, or came a few days early, was Sean Smith, who was going to set up secure communications. Uh, Sean Smith was a computer expert. And with them came five uh, excuse me, there were two diplomatic security agents, DS agents, uh, who were basically their bodyguards, and three more came with them. Um, so there was an American detachment of seven uh, at the diplomatic facility. But over at the CIA base, uh, unknown to anyone who was not in the know, was there was a, you know, all these CIA agents, case officers, uh, doing their, their work. But what was different What's different about them is, you need to understand, is we think of CIA agents like Jason Bourne or 007. In fact, the modern CIA agent is more likely to be a Yale valedictorian uh, with no military training whatsoever, or a little time on the farm on the CIA training base. Uh, and so what they do is they hire guys like Mark Osgeist. They hire GRS, they're called, the Global Response Staff. These are men, uh, almost exclusively men, uh, who are former special ops guys in the military, uh, former Navy SEALs, former Army Rangers. Uh, these, these guys have since left the military, but now they're private contractors, and they're hired to protect our CIA people around the world. And there were six of them at the time uh, in Benghazi. There was Oz, there was Chris Tanto Peranto, there was John Tig Tigan. There was Tyrone Roan Woods, 
And there were two others who have never become public. I know who they are, but uh, they've chosen never to reveal their identities. Um, in the book, they're called Dave D.B. Benton and Jack Silva. And so their job was to protect these CIA agents. But when everything hit the fan that night, they swing into action, almost very much as you saw in that, in that trailer. Uh, their job was not to protect the ambassador and the people who were trapped at the diplomatic facility, but they made it their job. They chose on their own, against orders, to go and try and save as many Americans as they could. Joining them much, much later in the night was we finally were able to get them some help from Tripoli. A plane came from Tripoli, and one of the men on the, the plane was Glenn uh, Bob Doherty, who was a former Navy SEAL as well, and uh, he figures into this story. So I'll just, I'll show you some scenes from what happened that night. Uh, not movie scenes, although they look it to me. Several dozen terrorists rushed onto the compound through an unlocked open front gate and uh, they wreaked havoc. They set fires. Uh, they were looking for anyone they could to kill. And uh, forgive me for that picture, but it's important to see. And ultimately, it, as you know, the outcome. Uh, and they left basically a, a ruined hulk or ruined hulk of buildings, some of the, some of the buildings you saw earlier. Um, these are the matching pictures of the aftermath. This, this is a, a private picture. This is, to me, one of the most poignant. That's Mark Osgeist, who I showed you earlier, afterward um, being evacuated with um, the ambassador's uh, casket on the plane with him. Now, when all of this happened, you may recall, it turned in, into a political fight almost immediately. And we didn't know what happened there on the ground. I got a call in September, excuse me, in June of 2013. I was following along at home, just like any normal person. I was not involved in this story. I did not cover this for the Boston Globe or for any publication. I was, uh, as Amelia said, I was sort of happily writing stories from World War II. Uh, I was, you know, kind of in my little sheltered workshop, stringing my beads and, you know, don't bother me. Uh, and I get this call in June of 2013. Publishing's a fairly small world and uh, people knew my work and said, listen, the guys who fought the battle that night, uh, they've never been identified publicly. They've stuck together, they stuck together that night and they've stuck together since, the five guys and the family of a sixth who, who didn't make it, uh, want to tell the story. They want to tell it once, and they want to tell it to someone who will find them credible and whose credibility will reflect onto the story. So, are you in? And you got to do it in about nine months, because we want to get the book out for the second anniversary of these attacks. And so, the way publishing works, if I were to start in June or July of 2013, I would have to have it early in 2014 to make a September uh, publication date for all of that. And um, some of you have frozen in time. I was returning, I was going to spend another month, uh, the month of August, I was already committed to spending living on a glacier in Greenland to follow up the story of that book. Um, and so I was going to be out of pocket for one of these nine months. And um, basically everybody I asked about said, you, 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 cannot, you cannot do this. This is, this is a story where good careers go to die. You know, this is, this is radioactive. 
you got a nice little thing going. You know, you got, I, I teach at Boston University, I write my books, uh, I do my thing. Uh, you do not want to do this because whoever writes this book is going to be put under tremendous scrutiny. It is going to be the proctology exam to end <laughs> proctology exams. And, uh, and so, I, and then uh, my, my current editor uh, from HarperCollins, this is, this is not a HarperCollins book, this is uh, signed on with a different publisher, Hachette in, in 12. Uh, my, my publisher, who I always had a great relationship with, said essentially, she gave me the, the literary version of the, uh, the mafia threat. You know, nice little career you got here. It'd be a shame if something happened to it, <laughs> you know? And well, I understood that to mean, and, and it's what it did mean, was if this damages your credibility and or your sales record, we're going to cancel your next contract. So that was fun. And uh, now she, she wouldn't prevent me from doing it, even though I was under contract uh, to deliver my next book to Harper. But uh, yeah, it was, it was, the writing was, was sort of all over the world, the, the, the wall. And then, of course, um, in, in a very short period of time after this, you may recall that 60 Minutes and um, Simon and & Schuster uh, stepped in it with a story that Lara Logan reported uh, that was a complete hoax. Uh, a fellow wrote a book uh, claiming he was there at the compound that night, and it was, it was a book called Embassy House, and uh, it was complete fabrication. And 60 Minutes and, uh, and Lara Logan uh, really paid a huge professional price for that hoax, for going down that road. Um, so that was the backdrop. Um, that was like, uh, you know, let this cup pass from my hands moment. You know, I don't want any part of this. Um, but kidding aside, I, I did feel like I had to do this. Um, uh, you know, if not me, then who? Uh, I, I felt as though this was an important enough story, and once I got to know these guys and they started trusting me, uh, I felt an obligation to do what I've try, been trying to do for my 30-year career, is tell stories fairly, honestly, down the middle, um, and as well as I can possibly tell them. And the first thing I did, though, when I started working on this book, was I wrote a, um, a memo that really became a note to the reader at the front of the book. And I'll, I just want to read an excerpt to you. I wanted to lay out the rules for, of the road uh, to the guys, the, the, the five men who I worked most closely with, and then also, though, for the reader, but also for the publisher. And I said, you know, you're not going to pull me into a political, uh, you know, firestorm here. Um, I know what the role of this book is. I see it. I have to deliver on it. But this is it. This book documents the last hours of an American diplomatic outpost in one of the most dangerous corners of the globe. Based on exclusive first-hand accounts, it describes the bloody assault, tragic losses, and heroic deeds at the U.S. State Department Special Mission Compound and at a nearby CIA base called the Annex in Benghazi, Libya, from the night of September 11, 2012, into the morning of the next day. It is not about what officials in the United States government knew, said, or did after the attack, or about the ongoing, political, uh, ongoing controversy over talking points, electoral politics, and alleged conspiracies and cover-ups. It is not about what happened in hearing rooms of the Capitol, anterooms of the White House, meeting rooms of the State Department, or green rooms of TV talk shows. 
It is about what happened on the ground, in the streets, and on the rooftops of Benghazi, when bullets flew, buildings burned, and mortars rained, when lives were saved, lost, and forever changed. That is almost unchanged from what I wrote in this manifesto uh, to, to everyone who was behind the scenes working with me uh, on this book. And they accepted it. And the guy said, yes, that's exactly what we want. We, we, we want to tell this story to, um, to the world. So the men whose lives were lost and also the dozens of lives that they saved are recorded for posterity. So I went to work. Uh, I, I, I want to, one disclaimer, I, I don't want to make it sound like I was, you know, this, this was some kind of heroism or, you know, I have friends, um, you can't be a journalist as long as I've been and not know people who have faced real risk. Um, I, I was friendly with uh, Jim Foley, who was the journalist who was uh, killed by ISIS uh, a year and a half ago. Uh, I've had other friends who were, I've lost other friends uh, in the field. Uh, I, I had the safety of my office in my typewriter. So um, I don't confuse what I did with, with what those journalists do and also with what the guys I was writing about have done. Those are the real heroes in this story. So, so we went to work um, and I interviewed these guys uh, for many, many, many hours. And they're really, they're a wonderful bunch of guys. I feel honored to know them and to, to have told their story. And they're very different. Uh, the fellow who was in the, the slideshow, Tonto, uh, he is a live wire. Uh, I have 600 pages of transcripts of interviews from Tonto. He does not stop. And after, you know, and so I would, we would tape them all and I would transcribe them or have, uh, bring in an outside transcriptionist because Tonto was just <laughs> garrulous to say the least. Um, and I was working on the book and Tonto, I, I get a, a FedEx package one day. Tonto had like seven more hours that he had recorded on his own. <laughs> And I said, I'm not, unless you tell me that it's, it's all new, I am not transcribing these, man. I'm just not going to do it. And then DB, uh, I had to almost pry every word out of him. If it had been up to him, it would have been about a page and a half of, of transcripts. Um, but what was amazing about these guys were, I've been doing this a long time, and you can tell when people are truly being honest with you and being candid with you. Uh, these guys are the least self-aggrandizing group of people you would ever imagine. And I, I separated them. I didn't do any of the initial interviews with them together because you don't want them drinking out of the same cup. You, know, you, don't, you don't want them uh, saying, oh yeah, right, I remember. You know, that's for later. So when separating them and then triangulating their stories, it was amazing how much they lined up and how close and, and, you know, the, the differences, which I also mentioned in the, in the uh, note to the reader, are all easily explainable. And would have, it would have been uh, fake if they hadn't had some, oh, I thought that radio call came in. That, you know, it's reasonable differences of, of experience, with, you know, within the, the story itself. So, uh, so I, I, I set to work, and I was able to tell the story. Um, and but I, I want to share with you a couple of, of things about it. I don't want to give away the whole story, even if you, you think you may know it. Um, but one of the privileges of getting to do this uh, is, is not always just the most exciting scenes that I write about, but is to get to know people and get to know the story. And, and I always, in all my books, I try to tell the story underneath the story and the story of the individuals and who they are and what motivates them. 
you know, as journalists, we do the who, what, where, when, why, and how. Um, I've always been most interested in the why and the how. Uh, what is the motivation? What makes someone do these things when your every fiber of your being should be, I should be, I have to leave now. Um, and one of the stories I tell in the book, it's an easy scene to overlook. It's late in the book, and uh, it's one of my favorites, so I always like to mention it. Uh, Tonto and DB, the, the most talkative and the least talkative, they actually are really, really close friends. They're, they're really quite a, a pair, those two. Um, and at this point, they're about six or seven hours into the, the night, and things have gone very badly. Um, they have saved a lot of lives already, but they know they, they, the ambassador's missing and Sean Smith um, is gone. And they're back at the annex, they're back at the CIA base, and they've taken up positions on the rooftops uh, because the, the fight keeps coming to them, and they know it's going to keep coming throughout the night. And uh, they've, been, they've been at this point through multiple firefights, and each firefight has gotten more intense. And Tonto turns to DB, and he says, you know, you know, it's just going to keep getting worse. And he tells him, you know, he's worried that they're going to come with big mounted guns, uh, called a technical, uh, these big sort of pickup trucks with a, with a big gun on the back. And he tells DB this, if they do, me and you, we're going to have to get down off this building and start getting out of this compound. We're going to have to move toward them, and we're going to have to attack them direct. Now, the first time I heard this, I didn't fully understand it. Then when I kept talking to D.B. and Tonto, I, I, I kind of understood what he was saying. He was telling his best friend, we're going to have to go on a suicide mission. At, thi at this moment, that's look, this is what it looks like. And I need to know you're with me. I sort of need to know that. And that's what Tonto needed at that moment. And D.B. Uh, just turned to him very quietly and said, yeah, I know. And, and Tonto pressed him again. He said, you know, it's going to be just like six of us against... And D.B. calms him down and says, yeah, I know. And in that moment, it was everything Tonto needed. It was, and to me, that whole, the whole book is encapsulated in that scene. There's a brotherhood among these guys. There's a self-sacrificing and a sacrificing for others uh, that defines these men. And there are more exciting scenes. There are things that blow up, as you saw Michael Bay is making the most of. But it seems like that, where they're absolutely fully committed to doing what they have to do, and for each other, uh, and for the people they're trying to save, that I hope the book um, does a good job of getting to. Uh, another scene that, that I, I always love to talk about, I don't want to go too far, um, is, this, is the scene at the very beginning when um, Tyrone Roan Woods, who's a former Navy SEAL, uh, he's the first one to reach the ambassador's uh, um, compound. It's taken them some, uh, some time. They've been prevented from leaving when they wanted to leave by the CIA base chief. And they finally get there. And it, it took me a while, because the guys are so modest about it. And I said, well, wait a second. At that moment, it, it finally dawned on me, it was a little, I was a little slow on the uptake. You know you've been hearing radio calls coming out saying, we are under attack, we are on fire, our buildings are on fire, if you don't get here, we're going to die. You've been taking fire on the way in. 
At that moment, there are three of them there, because the other guys have gone around the other way. There are three of them at the front gate. And the, the front gate, if you, could, if you saw it, this sort of arched gate, there's no way to look in and see. It's, it's 9.45, or excuse me, it's about 10.05 at this point at night, so it's dark. There's no way to see into this gate. And Roan jumps up and runs around this barrier and just runs barrels through that front gate. Now, he knows that there are dozens of armed terrorists on that base, uh, on that compound. And the other guys see him, and they follow him right through the gates of hell. And I don't, I, I don't pretend to understand exactly what gives the man the ability, or a woman, or anybody, the ability to do that when every, as I said before, every fiber in your being must be telling you, if I walk through there, I'm going to die. There's every reason to believe that that would happen. And so that moment is another one that I, you know, uh, I think you, you may know uh, how things end for, for Tyrone Woods, um, that it was important to preserve and to tell this story um, outside of politics and tell the story about a group of men uh, who were there for each other. Uh, Amelia mentioned some of my books, uh, my previous books, and um, I'm, I've, I've been fortunate. I've written seven very, very different books. Um, the first book was about a family deciding whether to have uh, a child knowing they would, the child would have Down syndrome if they continued the pregnancy. The second book was about uh, two teenagers who decide to commit murder. The third is about the Ponzi scheme, the original Ponzi scheme in 1920, um, and on from, from there. And if, if I reduce the works that I've done um, to one word, uh, the first one was about life, the second was about death, the third was about money, the fourth was about art, uh, the fifth was about war, the sixth was about survival, and this book was about brotherhood. And, and when, I, when I really sort of try and turn this into haiku, that's, that's what I'm thinking about. And to me, and what, what I enjoy doing, and what, what sort of, if there's a river that runs through, through my work, it's my attempt to explore what people do, uh, how they act and react for good and bad at the most extreme moments of their lives. Uh, I think that's a consistent theme of the work that I'm drawn to, and, and it's certainly the case here. Uh, I had the privilege in one of my, my earlier books that Amelia mentioned to tell the story in Lost in Shangri-La. And um, there were two remarkable men in that book, uh, the McCullum brothers. And if you've read that book or if you, you, you see that book, um, I hope you'll, you'll take note of them. Um, I am honored tonight uh, to have my friend here, uh, Denny McCullum Scott, who is the daughter and niece of, one of, of those two heroes. And so I'd love to just recognize Denny. And of course, her lovely husband, Dave, <laughs> uh, also my friend. Uh, I get to do this, and, and I, I love being a nonfiction author. And I, I'll, I'll want to save time for your questions. I don't want to go too long. but. Um, I get to do what I do because of people like Denny, because of people like these guys, uh, who decide that we're going to trust you with these stories. And these stories are enormously important to tell. Uh, and so I, I feel that privilege and that responsibility that comes with it 
every time I sit down and, and, and do an interview. Um, I want to leave or end uh, my, my portion because I'd love to answer questions and tell you anything I can about um, this story or books or journalism or the movie or anything you like. Um, I want to end with, with, with one scene. This is near the end when uh, dawn is coming and um, they're fearing. The, the, all these guys um, are something of, if not military historians exactly, they're all familiar with military history. And dawn is an enormously frightful time. Um, attacks at dawn, we've all heard that line. Um, and they know something's about to happen. And uh, suddenly the sky fills with mortars, these incendiary cells that are launched uh, from far away, and they start landing on the buildings where they are. Wait a second, Tonto thought. If that was us, we would fire mortars to set up an assault. And if they go into assault, it's going to come from the field to the south that I'm supposed to be watching. He spun around and positioned himself to look out over the south wall. Tonto saw the 10-car militia motorcade speed away from the annex to points unknown. He hoped that some were trying to locate the source of the mortars, but he considered it just as likely that most or all were fleeing, like cockroaches when you turn on the light, Tonto thought. Then came another whoosh. Even with his damaged ears, even be before the second explosion, Tonto knew what was happening. Someone came over the radio and asked if they were under attack by RPGs. No, it was a mortar, Tonto said. When the questioner repeated the inquiry, Tonto came across the radio again, loud and clear. Mortars, mortars, mortars! On Building C, after the second explosion, Oz dropped down below the lip of the parapet to replace the spent magazine on his assault rifle. Just as they'd planned, Roan ne never hesitated. He remained upright and fully engaged, increasing his rate of fire to mask the temporary loss of Oz's gun. Roan gripped the black machine gun with his meaty hands, holding the butt hard against his shoulder. With a deafening growl, the weapon ingested belt-fed rounds and spewed them with deadly intent into zombie land. Roan's thick biceps flexed as he moved left and right. Bullets and white smoke poured from the barrel. Roan kept shooting as Oz reloaded, defending the men on the buildings and towers to his right, left, and rear, protecting the men and women below his feet inside Building C. Exposing himself to fire, Roan delivered on his promise to unleash hate on the enemy attackers who were trying to kill them. Then another mortar exploded, and Roan stopped firing. The former seal with the King Leonidas beard, who'd extended his stay in Benghazi to help Ambassador Christopher, J. Christopher Stevens, who intended to retire from GRS operator trips to work with his wife, who was eager to raise his infant son and see his two older boys grow into men, who instinctively and compulsively watched over his fellow operators, who led the rescue charge into the compound, who searched through a burning building for two missing men, and who answered the first two explosions by rising with a machine gun and returning fire, had absorbed the concussive force of the explosion. The book is dedicated to the four men who didn't come home that night, and uh, so is the movie. And they're sharing in, um, in all of the good and the proceeds and, and all of those things because they're the real heroes. And so uh, I hope you won't forget them.
with that, we have reached the part of our podcast where we turn to our club book audience for questions and comments from Mitchell Zukoff and his work. In this book club, we like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage and help bridge the gap between the page you read and the process it took to write it. Our first question of the night comes from an audience member wondering if Zukoff could describe the safe room that was present in the compound that came under siege and why that safe room failed to protect J. Christopher Stevens. In the villa, there was a, uh, a safe room. There was a, uh, a, a place where he was supposed to be able to take refuge. Uh, we do not believe he actually made it into the safe room. We know he was in the bathroom. Um, and that he, and he was with one of the DS agents, Scott Wickland and Sean Smith. And the three of them rolled wet towels uh, to try and keep the smoke out. Uh, but uh, they almost certainly did not make it to the safe room. So it was not effective. Even if they had, uh, it seems to me, not just me, but, but experts who, who know the layout, uh, that also almost certainly would have still allowed, the safe room was not uh, smoke preventive. Uh, and so they didn't have the, the, the kind of anti-smoke uh, you know, blowers that they do in the other embassies, in a better equipped embassy. Our next audience member mentions the last passage Zukov read and points to his use of the word hate. As a journalist, how does Mitchell Zukov decide to use what some might consider charged language? I never would have used it without him. Roan was a warrior, and uh, he was a, a Navy SEAL, and he had been through a lot. He was almost 20 years in the Navy um, when he retired. He was 20 years in the Navy when he retired from the Navy before he did this. And several people said he was walking through the buildings, getting everybody, you know, calm. He was, he was walking through before all this happened, saying, if they come, we're going to unleash hate. You got nothing to worry about. And yet all these CIA officials and uh, CIA agents and, and, and also just people who were like cooks and drivers and mechanics who were huddling in Building, building C, um, and he strode through there, don't worry, we're going to unleash hate. And he, he didn't mean it as a, you know, he meant it as a confidence builder. And so that's why I use it there. And I had, I, there's, a, there's a predecessor to it. There's a precursor where he first says it. And people are just happy to see him walking through the building. These, these guys talk in very primal terms. They understand, and they certainly understood that night, that the, the people who were coming after them, both at the compound and at the annex, they wanted them dead. This was, this was life or death. And so... Uh, Roan was, was somebody who was going to sort of stand up to that and say, that's, you know, I'm not going to look for it, but if you come after me, you're going you're gonna to get the other end of the barrel. This question asker wonders why the ambassador was in Benghazi when so few security measures had been taken to keep him and his staff safe. Did he know about these risks before arriving? All the investigations have shown very clearly that Christopher Stevens chose on his own to go there on uh, a few days before September 11th. Uh, Christopher Stevens was a remarkable diplomat and a remarkable man. Uh, I think it's fair to say, though, because we also we have his last diary pages, and, and I, I quote from them in the book, and uh, he was 
uh, forgive me, he was a little bit naive about Benghazi. He had been in Benghazi before the revolution and during the revolution when the Americans were beloved, where people were reportedly naming their female children Susan for Susan Rice because of the, the American um, you know, uh, uh, military uh, advisor because of the, um, the overflights by our, the people were so happy. It was only, and so he remembered when, you know, Benghazi was beautiful and everybody was nice <laughs> to the Americans and wanted them there. What happened when he was away, this was his first time back, was that in the vacuum, in the post-Gaddafi vacuum, the militias rose up. And uh, it was a much more dangerous place than he realized. Not specifically, what I can tell you about the ambassador is that he did request more assistance beforehand. Uh, he made a request to the State Department in August for a, what was called a, uh, an SST, a site team, um, military site team, to remain in Libya that presumably would have traveled with him uh, because of the elections that were underway. And he thought it was a very unstable time. That request was denied by the State Department in Washington. He was a career diplomat. He was not going to defy them. And uh, a few weeks later, General Carter Ham, the AFRICOM commander, uh, offered, he said, you know, I'll leave military assets there if you want. He said it both in um, a private conversation and in a, uh, a written conversation. And uh, the ambassador couldn't countermand his superiors in Washington, so he declined. Uh, so he was somewhat aware of that, uh, and so, but, you know, once it was underway, it was too late for those conversations. Our next audience member inquires if Zukov traveled to Benghazi to help him with the writing of 13 Hours. You know, it's a great question, and the truth is, I didn't go. I made plans, and uh, we, we, you know, working with friends who are journalists who have fixers in pretty much every country, I, I outlined a trip. And in the fall of 2013, which is when I would have gone, uh, there were a number of very, very dangerous moments there. Uh, when we were, before the book came out, we were talking with Anderson Cooper um, about doing a special together. And we, and, but it would only work if, um, if we could be on the ground there. And we all just decided it, it, the risk is too great for the rewards. Because uh, as you say, um, it is my practice to go, you know, whether it's the Gre to Greenland, whether it's to New Guinea, whether, you know, I've, I've, that's what I do. Uh, so that was hard. The one advantage I had, though, was the, the guys. That uh, what I would have gained from having been there, which I think I would have gained something, uh, they were amazing. And they, were, they, would, they put up with just my endless questions. Um, the guy who, who is um, identified in the book as Jack Silva, uh, he just, you know, he just knew that every day, he, he has a, a sort of a, a unique mind for those kind of details. And I said, you know, how many steps would it take me to get from here to here? What would, you know, what would it sound like? What was this road like? You know, what was gunfighter road like? What was embassy road like? Uh, you know, Adidas road. And he, he has an almost photographic memory. So I just annoyed the crap out of him. Yeah, uh, it was the closest I could come. Another audience member comments that there must be dozens of other missions around the world similar to Benghazi. 
Has the State Department taken measures to prevent other such tragedies? Ostensibly, yes. But I, I have my doubts, to be honest with you. Uh, and I'll tell you why. It's not like when, when Benghazi happened, we hadn't had attacks on American facilities all over the world previously and previous investigations. I mean, we had what happened in, uh, in Beirut. We had what happened in Dar es Salaam. We had what, you know, this was, this is the one that's gotten the most attention. But each time the State Department did say afterward, uh, this will never happen again. We're going to have a full investigation and we are going to enforce these standards and practices. Um, the, uh, the State Department has resisted the elevation of, a, um, of, of a, an official to the undersecretary status. Uh, for, for facilities. That's a mistake in my mind. Um, I'm willing to say, you know, to step out of my journalist's shoes for a second and say, wait a second, I want one person who's responsible for facilities at the undersecretary level, not at a lower level within the State Department. They have sworn that they have eliminated all missions since Benghazi, that every American facility now follows the standards of, of um, uh, of consulates and embassies. I hope that's true. That's the most I can tell you. But it's a great question. The last question of the night comes from an audience member wondering what Zukov's role was in the creation of the movie adaptation of 13 Hours. My role was um, as a consultant. Uh, I didn't write the script. Uh, I worked closely with a screenwriter. Uh, it was a, a fellow named Chuck Hogan. Uh, who wrote the book, The Town, that became the movie The Town. He also, if you watch the, the TV show The Strain, he's the executive producer and the showrunner of The Strain. And I think he did a very good job. But it has been a, an awkward process and a difficult process for me as a nonfiction author because, you know, what I joke a little bit is say, the book's called 13 Hours, the movie's two hours. Stuff's going to get changed, you know. <laughs> they can't. I would like the movie to be 13 hours long. Uh, Paramount wouldn't go for that. Um, so it, it's, you know, my, my first reading of the script was very difficult, and, and when I saw things being compressed, uh, my second reading I was better. And by the time I got there, and I and I got to know, and I, in fact I went there when I went to Malta. They filmed in Malta and briefly in Morocco. And when I was there, I was there with Oz and Tig, with two of the the guys. We, we went together um, to be there on set and being with them helped me because it's their story and they were they became comfortable with it and uh, they appreciated the actors who were playing them uh, just how serious they were, how committed they were and how sincere they were. And uh, so I, I'll tell you a quick story. Um, two of my closest friends wrote the book uh, Black Mass which just became a movie with Johnny Depp. And so I've been able to vicariously watch them suffer <laughs> as their book got you know, turned into a movie. Um, so that was very helpful to me. Uh, and I feel like in the end, I'll, I'll, I'm, I'm belaboring it, but in the end, the movie's going to reach more people than the book will. It's always the way. And I'm willing to compromise a bit to have, the, if the story is true in spirit to what these guys did, I can live with that because now millions of people are going to be exposed to it when perhaps tens of thousands 
would, would have been to the book. So it's, it's the trade-off. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you for coming out tonight. Thank you. That wraps up our RH Stafford Library event with Mitchell Zukoff in Washington County. Make sure to catch our next Club Book event with Sarah Peretsky at 7 p.m. Thursday, October 1st at Dakota County's Galaxy Library in Apple Valley. Detective fiction favorite Sarah Peretsky is the author of more than 20 books to date, including the New York Times bestselling V.I. Warshawski series. The latest installment, Brushback, hit shelves this summer. Meet Sarah Peretsky, get your questions answered, and books signed. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. We also have photos of previous discussions from this season and past seasons on our Clubbook Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle clubbookmn. And if you enjoy these free Clubbook events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to those who make Clubbook possible, including MELSA, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include Minnesota Public Radio, MinPost, Around Town Agency, and Common Good Books, where you can purchase all the books featured in Clubbook. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Clubbook, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.